this is Tina again with Good Nurse, Bad Nurse. And this week I have a little bit of a special guest with me because we're going to do something a little different. So each week I'll have a different guest. Occasionally we may have the same person come back from time to time. But uh, this week I have Meg with me and she is a nurse practitioner. She's a pediatric nurse practitioner and Meg is also going to be my good nurse story. And I I cannot wait to get to the end and tell you about Meg and what all she's done as a nurse practitioner. So Meg, hello. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) So Meg and I have been getting to know each other over the past few weeks, and she is so much fun to talk to. I've really enjoyed getting to know you, Meg. It's just been a blast. And we've really gotten to know each other really well over the past two days, (laughs) just trying to figure out how to record this podcast. Oh my goodness. Your viewer or your listeners should know that you are the classy lady I aspire to be someday. Oh, thank you for saying that. Uh, you are very patient. Let me just say that because my listeners know how I am. I talk about it every week. Every week it's an adventure and a comedy of errors of what did I do this week to screw the whole podcast up? So it's so hard. I had no idea there was so much like I don't know what I thought actually went into a podcast, but watching you do all of this, like this VH1 behind the music that I've had for the past like 48 hours, I'm so impressed with you. Thank you. It's It's been a learning experience for sure. I really enjoy it, but I feel like every week I'm trying to learn something new. There's always some new curveball thrown at mm-hmm. me where I'm like, okay, now how do I get past this hurdle? But I love doing it and I want to try to encourage people and educate people and maybe entertain them a little bit with my silliness. So hopefully we can do that. I want to just remind everyone that I really appreciate you guys going onto social media, saying hi to us and just send us messages and let us know that you're listening and give us any ideas if you have any ideas. So also, just to kind of let you know what we're going to be doing with this episode, we have a little in the news story we're going to talk about. And then I have a story I'm going to tell you about the bad nurse, which is Brian Stewart. He's an army medic. I'm going to tell you what he did to his son. That's a a tragic story, but it's an interesting one. And then we'll talk about Meg at the end. How's that sound? (laughs) Sound okay, Meg? Yeah. Yes, it does. (laughs) I know I've kind of put you on the spot, but just from what all I've heard, it's really interesting. And I think people really enjoy hearing about what all you've done. So let's get started. We, you kind of told me about this nurse practitioner from New Orleans and how she wrote some children's books. Yeah, uh, Dr. Charmaine Lawson Baker. And she's actually been in the news more than once lately, uh, just kind of been highlighted uh, for her education and how she's working to, along with other nurse practitioners, to redefine affordable health care and kind of fill in some gaps in care. But what I was not aware of was the fact that she is a children's book author. So Hmm. she has created this series of children's books called um, Nola the Nurse. And um, she's kind of utilizing her education and experience in technology and healthcare, and actually specifically her work with Hurricane Katrina survivors, because she is in in New Orleans, Louisiana. And she's turned that all into an opportunity to both um, kind of introduce people to the work of nurse practitioners, and also um, create this series of stories, you know, showing this the main character, Nola the nurse, who is a a nurse of color, and which is awesome. Because as we all know, a lot of, um, you know, in a lot of literature, there's an underrepresentation, like a lack of representation for um, people and children of color. And she's, yeah, she said that she was like, 
looking at her own books in her house and because she was looking for things to read her daughter and that there just wasn't a lot there. So she just met that need herself and started it. Isn't that awesome? Yeah. (laughs) It's great. And I looked it up and she is so adorable. Little Nola or Nola, however you say it. So cute. Yeah. And and Nola, as as you said, Nola is the protagonist and she's a seven-year-old girl and she wants to be a nurse practitioner like her mom. So she watches her mom take care of people (laughs) and she decides to kind of take care of all of her friends, sick baby dolls. And, um, then I guess in the neighborhood, everyone kind of realizes that when your baby doll is sick, you got to call Nola. So she, she runs, she runs mm. to, to see her patients whenever they're in need. And so, oh. yeah, since so it like incorporates kind of, um, again, increasing familiarity with nurse practitioners and just like the medical environment in general, which can be scary for a lot of kids. So I think that's super positive, but then also like a lot of cultural sensitivity and um, kind of, uh, you know, providing mirrors, cultural mirrors for a lot of kids in our country. Mm -hmm. So I think that's really cool. I think it's cool too. It's so important. It's important for people of all colors and races and backgrounds to see other people of different colors and races and backgrounds. Um, And it's important for people who are underrepresented to have something they can relate to so that every book they look at is not mm-hmm. something someone that doesn't look like them. They can look at something and go, "Oh, this is something mm-hmm. I can relate to." Yeah, that's nice. And it looks like um, she did, you know, the first one, and then she had so much support. People were so into it that she um, also she got requests to do make more nurse practitioner roles and um, midwives, and then uh, you know a male nurse and uh, like all. So I mean, just so like a, a CRNA. She has a CRNA character. Oh my goodness. I know. I didn't know what a CRNA was when I was a kid. Like, I think I was probably in my early 20s before I knew that. And so, you know, she also has like an activity series that like is, is uh, teaches like math and um, how to, you know, multiply and form sentences and works on reading skills. And it's also cool because every time Nola goes to a new house, um, she she encounters like a different culture and she shares a meal with that family. And so she's partaking in, you know, whatever their cultural traditions and practices are. And it's, it's just a really awesome way to introduce kids to a lot of things that, you know, they might not encounter otherwise. Mm -hmm. And, um, well, I think that's, that's amazing. I wish, I hope someone like Disney or Nickelodeon or somebody (laughs) like that picks this up and does like it's a little television show. I could totally see that being a huge hit with kids. Oh, I know. I, so I um, am the parent of two children. Um, okay. And I, when I, I went through kind of a very similar thing when I was looking for books, especially for my son, he's my youngest, I, you know, whatever he was into at the time, you know, I, if he was, he wanted to be an artist or wanted to be, you know, a baseball player, and I was looking for things. Um, I was, it was always important to me to also have the books in his room provide cultural mirrors or racial mirrors to him for him. And, um, so I think I, I'm just, as opposed to like, I was like, Oh, I have the same need that she did, but she actually took it a step further and solved a problem. And I just complained about she it. Just did yeah. it. Oh. <laughs> You're like, somebody please fix this for me. Oh man, what are we going to do? And she's like, you write a book. I don't have time me. to write a bunch of books. Yeah. <laughs> she's she's way, clearly way busier than I am. And she was like, Oh, well, that's fine. I mean, Dr. Charmaine Lawson Baker and I have the exact same number of hours in our day. And she also just manages <laughs> to like write books and solve these other problems. And I just walk around thinking, oh man, what am I going to do? Uh-huh. Yeah. They're going to find out different, Meg, when I start t- talking about you at the end of the podcast. So you're not going to get away with all that that you just said, because I know better. Uh, I don't know, man. 
<laughs> You're going to be so busted. <laughs> well, so I guess that's our story. So I'm going to be, um, I want to pick those books up. I'm excited about those. So as far as the dun 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 bad nurse story, it is not a nurse. Like I said, it's, and I said army medic. It's He's not, he wasn't in the army. I think he was Navy, but he was a medic at any rate. So this guy's name is Brian Stewart. He, he and his wife met during military training um, at a facility in Missouri and they were both medic and they moved in together and then she got pregnant. And so I guess at first, according to, well, at first, you know, she was real excited. They, it, it was a good thing that she was pregnant. Then he got sent away for Operation Desert, Desert Storm. This was like 1991. And then when he came back from Saudi Arabia, he kind of was changed. He was very different. So when he got back, his he kind of, I guess he decided he didn't really want to be with her anymore. So he wanted a divorce and it was a very bitter divorce. They were fighting over child support payments and he didn't want to pay. And then as they would fight about it, he would threaten the little boy, his son, who at this time was just a baby. And he would say things like, your child's not going to live beyond the age of five. And when I leave you, I'm not going to leave any ties behind and things like that. So, I mean, she, I guess, didn't really think he would really do anything, but they did divorce. They separated. And when he was 11 months old, he, they had pretty much lost contact. Okay. And he, he was nowhere in the picture, but uh, the little boy got sick. He just like had an asthma attack and was in the hospital for a few days. So she contacted the father to tell him that he, that the baby was in the hospital. So the father who has not had any contact with him whatsoever and didn't want to be in his life at all, all of a sudden shows up at the hospital all ready to show him attention. And he sends the mother down to the cafeteria to get something to eat. You know, like, hey, why don't you go take a break and I'll stay here. And in hindsight, of course, you know, we can look at this and go, what was she thinking? But in reality, I'm sure she was thinking, you know, he's his father and she's probably thinking maybe he's had a change of heart and oh, he's sick. And well, yeah. And she was thinking you know, someone is going to give me a break. And I've been here in this hospital room with this baby and I'm tired and this is his dad. And it's, you know, yes, he can parent Mm -hmm. for a while while I go get a cup of coffee. And I'm so scared about what you're going to say next. I know. I know. So, and it is, it is horrible. Um, so he, at this, at the time was working in a laboratory and he was a blood tester for, uh, in this laboratory for different, that held, uh, lab specimens with different diseases. Okay. And he used to joke around his colleagues uh, would, would, would uh, later say that he would joke around and say, if I wanted to infect someone with one of these viruses, they'd never even know what hit them. So basically while she was out, um, when she got back to the room, when she, when she got, when she returned, he's the, the baby, uh, he's screaming in his father's arms. What? And he said that his vital signs were all out of rat, uh, all out of whack. And um, they didn't know what was, the doctors were baffled. The doctors were like, what is going on? This is so weird. Like all of a sudden it's vital signs are going crazy. This kid's acting like he's in pain. Um, Something is just really weird. So obviously what had happened is there was a deadly virus now coursing through his veins. They were able to restore his pulse, his temperature and breathing to normal. And they sent him home because they had no idea that this happened. They did not know that he did this. Well, of course, as time goes on, his 
condition starts to deteriorate and his mother starts watching him complete, just completely decline his health. And she doesn't know what's wrong. She's taking him to the, to the doctors. The doctors are going, I don't know what is wrong with him. They, why would they suspect that? He was a perfectly healthy child other than having asthma, which is how many kids have asthma, you know? So one night after he had been checked for every disease imaginable, his pediatrician woke up from a nightmare. And now I will tell you that my husband has awakened and in the middle of the night before and thought of a, like the solution to yeah. a problem for his, he's a computer uh, software developer and he's been working on a problem before. And he's like, he will wake up in the middle of the night and be like, oh, I just thought of the, the solution. It's almost like your mind sort of works while you're sleeping. And this is what happened. And this pediatrician was like clicked with him. And he called the hospital to ask them to test for HIV. And when the test came back, he was diagnosed with full-blown AIDS and three opportunistic infections. Wait, I have some questions. So wait. Yes. I need, I need you to walk this back for me. So <laughs> when he when he was like in his dad, so what is the time span? Do we know the time span between? Well, I know that he was 11 months old when that happened when he was yeah when he was infected and i know that he was so is the is the thought he was five when they figured it out is the thought just that he was freaking out when he was being held by his dad because his dad had ejected something into his body like and so he's reacting to the pain of the shot or whatever well his vital signs went all out of whack and something happened so something he his body clearly reacted to probably some weird blood that was put into his blood you know i did and then I don't. That also makes yeah, and like because like then is it like a like he was transfused? You think think about with the wrong blood, right? Think about the think about the signs that we look for when we give a blood transfusion. Right. You know, you take all their, their vital signs. You watch for temperature. You watch for rash. You watch for yeah. any kind of weird reaction. So I guess he, you know, is receiving a small amount, but still enough, especially for a child. To have a transfusion reaction. Um, he probably was crying because yeah. he was injected. You know, that probably did hurt. But they probably would have never thought to right. look for a needle mark or consider that he would have done that. And then, so, you know, they did And didn't. then he went home and then he was just got like sicker and sicker and sicker. Oh, my goodness. Right. Gracious. He just got sicker because, you know, his immune system eventually was probably nothing. And then these opportunistic oh infections come along and the doctors are just scratching their head like you're I don't they didn't know. And who would think it would be HIV in this child who's never had a blood transfusion? There's he's never been exposed to it. Why, why would they even think to test? And then oh all of a sudden gosh. it just occurred to the doctor to do it. And there it was. So they wanted him, he said, and he, they wanted him to have as uh, normal of as, uh, normal a life as, as they could. So they gave him five months to live and sent him home. The doctors continued to treat him with everything that they had available at the time, um, which would have been, I guess, around the mid 90s at this point. His entire childhood was lived one day at a time and just surviving was his, that was their, his whole childhood was just trying to survive by taking different medications and avoid more infections. He was left hearing impaired as a side effect of the medication. 
And then also, shockingly, his in, his health began to improve. Eventually, he was healthy enough to go to school. He started attending some part-time school, but they would have to take him to school with a backpack yeah. full of medications that would have to go through an IV line. And he didn't really understand, of course, what other people were going to be saying about him because people are so ignorant, you know, and they just don't know. And they would think, oh, if I just look at him, I'm going to get AIDS. Oh, you know, they terrible. don't realize. Yeah. And so they did make fun of him. He was bullied. You know, he was the kid with AIDS and that sort of thing. So it was really hard on him growing up just because of the ignorance and the way people can be and the way children, unfortunately, can be sometimes when they probably repeating what they've heard their parents say. But he wouldn't get invited to birthday parties and that sort of thing. They would call him AIDS boy. They would call him gay boy. And then he, he just felt, yeah, isolated and alone. And like there just wasn't a place in the world for him, he said. Poor baby. Yeah. But when he was 10, he started piecing together the story. It took a few years and it just sort of all, I guess he started maybe getting bits and pieces. And eventually he started realizing how, you know, what a major thing this was that his father had done and what had really happened to him. I'm sure it's not something that you just tell a small child. and But at some point he had to know. When he was 13, he was studying the Bible alone in his bedroom and he found faith and it helped him, he said, to forgive his father for what he had done. And but he basically said he did that because he he wanted to be a better person than his father. He didn't want to be on his level. I mean you're already there. Like I mean look what <laughs> that was <laughs> exactly Mm-hmm. The bar, the bar was real low, dude. You surpassed it. It was just so yeah. low. But he, he actually changed his name. He says he did it to help protect his identity. But now that he's older, he goes, he does like now that he's grown, he does speaking engagements and and things like that. So I don't think he's necessarily trying to keep a, a completely low profile because this was on the internet and he does live in, in Great Britain and, and he's still alive and he's still alive. So that was good. I did have a good ending to it. I know it was, it's a horrible story and he had a terrible childhood because of what his father did to him. And he has to go back every, I think it's every five years and speak to the parole board to keep him, keep them from letting him out because he keeps coming up for parole and he has to go back and, tell them he basically has to read a, a victim statement and he said he, he kind of has to be in the same room with him and his father for lack of a better word refers to him as his son and it just he hates yeah. that he's he's like i'm not his son and and that you know, i'm a victim of his well and also like just something you said there like that is such an act of bravery because you said he, he lives in the uk so if this guy got yes. paroled it would largely not affect him so he is doing that not for himself. He's doing that for the preservation and safety and sense of peace for everyone else. Like that is that mm-hmm. is a selfless act right there. Yeah, it really is because the the guy tries to say that he did what he did because of PTSD because he was in Desert Storm. I was going to ask about but, the next question. Well, he was stationed on a ship and there really he didn't see any combat, so there really would be no reason for him to have PTSD necessarily. There wasn't any major thing that happened to him that should have caused him to have such PTSD that he would do something so diabolical as to go back to go to a hospital room where his 11 month old as an inject him. I mean, that, that was oh, all so premeditated. Yeah. So just- there, and you know, and there's obviously there's never going to be anything to justify that action. However, I, mm-hmm. you know, you said when he, he came back, he was changed. So something must've happened. Like he, you know, he wasn't the same person or I don't know, but there are many, many very, very brave young men and women, you know, with PTSD who would 
would never dream of this kind of thing. Like I would never use that as an excuse. So I don't, I don't, it's almost like the two aren't necessarily connected. Yeah. I don't think that they are. I mean, I think that sometimes just that separation may be enough to cause you to realize that you don't want to be married to that person Mm -hmm. anymore. Something may not necessarily be, you know, be that you're traumatized from the event of, you know, going over there. I mean, if he had seen combat, maybe, but apparently that wasn't the case. But who knows what he dealt with, but it's still, like you said, it wouldn't justify. It could never justify what he did. Uh, He added an R to his name and changed his name to his mother's surname. So he's Brian Jackson. And he said that he... If he had not been a motivational speaker, which is what he is now, he would have been a stand-up comedian because he loves to make jokes and he always has. He's just always loved. He's just always loved to um, be lighthearted and make jokes about. He's even always made jokes about what it's like to be HIV positive. So what a doll! I know he really is adorable. He says he's healthy as a horse now. Healthier. He says he's healthier than a horse. He's beyond that. Um, He said. I might be slightly chunky, but I'd still consider myself a good athlete. (laughs) (laughs) He said right now his T-cell count is above average and it gives him virtually no chance of passing the virus on. He's gone from taking 23 pills a day to taking one. And he said he doesn't really know why or how, but his HIV status is, quote, undetectable. Yeah, you can have undetectable viral load. Um, And Mm -hmm. that is, I way like a very long time ago I used to work with children and families who are affected and infected you know and dealing with HIV and that was some you know what we would talk about a lot is having undetectable viral loads but you know you still have to you know take your precautions and manage your your health and well-being but that is so awesome that he has turned this into something that just could have been I, I, I don't know devastating and just give anyone an excuse to you know wallow and malinger their entire life and he's like I mean He's like, yeah, there's that, but also I'm a motivational speaker and a and a comedian and an athlete, and I'm none of those things. Yeah. I'm none of those things, <laughs> and he's just like dominating. What a, an awesome guy! Isn't it great? So I love this story because it's it's one of those stories where it's horrible what the guy did to him, but it's, it has a great ending. I love that he just took that horrible thing and turned it into this great positive thing where he's helping other people with it. I know. Gosh, he's impressive. So that's the story. It was kind of a short one, but I thought it was so good. I had to tell it. Yeah. So that brings us to the good nurse story. (laughs) The end. See everyone next time. (laughs) See you next week. So Meg, um, this, what happened here is I put a little announcement out on one of my Facebook groups and I said, Hey, is, is anybody interested? It was like a nursing group or maybe in a my favorite murder group or something like that. And I just said, Hey, is anybody interested in guest hosting? And someone nominated you for the good nurse story. And then you and I started chatting. I was like, you would be a really good guest host. We should just do this all at the same time. So, and I think, tell me a little bit I was just, so that they can hear. Yeah. Yeah. What were you I'm sorry. I, was th- I think when that, when I saw that nomination, I think my reaction was like, that's so funny. Like the, <laughs> and then I just assumed that was going to be the end of the end of the tale, but I was wrong. Ha <laughs> ha, funny joke. That was a good one. Yeah, I am. Now, and the reason that this person nominated you 
is it has to do with this program that you started with children and going into school systems. Yeah. Explain that, explain that system because I had never heard of anything like that before. Oh, sure. So um, I'm a pediatric nurse practitioner and I about, we're going into our fourth year. So about like three years ago and change, I was hired along with another nurse practitioner friend of mine to start a kind of a series of school-based health centers. And when we first started, there were only three of us. It was the director of the program and then the two nurse practitioners. And it was, you know, a lot of the kind of um, some of like the logistical stuff, like kind of getting arrangements and talking to the schools and things like that had been in process before we came along. So we got to join kind of mid-conversation with that, but then also do a lot of the prep work for build, like literally building and creating clinics inside schools um, that were in neighborhoods or populations where we, after a lot of like data and you know looking at research, realized that kids were going a really long time between accessing care. So, and you know this is going to sound familiar to anyone who works in, I guess I was going to say pediatrics, but any I think facet of medicine, frequent utilizers of the ED for things that are not emergent complaints or um, like really long gaps between like well visits, things like that. Mm-hmm. And we, you know, we realized that there were just so many barriers to, for some families and kids in accessing care that it would probably be helpful if we just brought the care to them. So we mm-hmm. went into schools where we, you know, kind of worked it out with the, the school and the school system. And we built like kind of right within the school building, uh, these clinics and they are, um, full service pediatric primary care clinics. Um, they are largely nurse practitioner led. Um, and, uh, we started, uh, it was just the two of us, but now I think when we first opened, we were in maybe the first couple of days we opened, we were in two, uh, clinics and now we've expanded into 12. Um, and we do really, we try to do everything that we can to meet the needs of our population. What that ends up looking like is, um, just the same kind of thing that you or I would take our kids to any sort of pediatric primary care practice for. So we do well care, we do sick care, we do um, manage allergies, asthma, um, you know, reproductive health care. Um, you know, we have, we have kids with chronic medical conditions and we end up kind of liaising between our major hospital system and their subspecialty providers and then our kids to kind of make sure that um, those conditions are being managed you know, appropriately on, on the, on the primary care end. Um, it just anything you, you name or that our population asks for, we try to meet that need. Um, you know, we're, we can do now we're doing like next one insertions in the schools when the children and families want it. Um, and we're in elementary, middle and high school. So really is kind of a lot of, a lot of kids, like a big lifespan or a big age range of kids. Um, Having said that, we are open as a as a practice. We've made the decision, along with the school system, to be open to any you know. Even if you do, if you attend a school where there isn't a clinic, you, you are welcome at our clinic. If you are a child in the community where there is a clinic, you are welcome at our clinic. We will see people. We we you know we want to we want to make sure that we are not a you know that we are open to everyone that there are as few barriers as possible to accessing our care. We are not intending to subvert or replace anyone's relationship with our family doctor. Um, on the contrary, we try a lot to reconnect our patients with their family doctor if they have one. But, you know, a lot of our kids just don't or they have um, a lot going on at home. Like I, you know, I, I like you and I have talked about <coughs> previously, um, housing instability, uh, you know, some 
they're in food deserts. So um, our kids mostly eat at school. Um, they are experiencing, you know, some of these neighborhoods where we're working, there's uh, neighborhood tensions, you know, like, so they're experiencing violence maybe in their neighborhoods. And so there's just a lot of uh, maybe psychosocial things that are happening at, with the with the child and um, a lot of uh, you know, maybe other kids in the home who have medical needs as well. So we just, you know, we didn't, we wanted to make sure that if there was a way we could provide an avenue to care that we were doing that. So we also have mental and behavioral health clinicians on site. Um, and so we can connect our kids with, uh, you know, therapy services whenever, you know, they need it. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it's really, it has been very much in response to the needs of each individual community. So we have some schools where you know, there's a large, like maybe a larger latent TB population. So we're doing TB meds at that school, you know, because these were kids who were not making it back in for the lengthy treatment of you know, their TB. But if we just bring TB treatment to them, like, we can just go get them out of math class. Like I, that's the other, you know, like mm-hmm. kids don't miss appointments with us because we can just traipse down the hallway and be like, Hey, you're supposed to be in with me. <laughs> and we just go get them. Yeah. So, and if you have permission from their parents mm-hmm. to do that, then you can just, go yeah. Do oh that. yeah. And we, uh, we have permission. I mean, we would never see a child without consent and the parents are always welcome to be there, but often they have jobs or other commitments. And, you know, like I couldn't run down to my kid's school during the middle of the day. So they, they can't always do that mm-hmm. either. Um, so I call them before and I call them after and I, before I say, yeah, I'm going to see your son for X, Y, Z thing. Did you have any concerns? I confirm allergies and all that kind of business. And then I call them afterwards and I'm like, so we had this visit and, um, you know, I, he's an awesome, he's an awesome kid. You know, let's maybe try tweaking this medication. Let's try something else. And we'll do a four week follow up and whatever. I've already sent the prescriptions to your pharmacy because we do keep stock meds on site. And then we also have um, like stuff to do lab work on site. We do our own phlebotomy and stuff right there in the building because we don't want anyone to have to leave. And then we have a courier that comes, you know, one to two times a day to either bring us supplies or take our stuff back to the main central lab. Um, but the parents are all for it. So they'll, you know, they're, you know, when they've consented to a service, they're, they're very happy to kind of have that be just one more thing they don't have to worry about at the end of the day. And as a mom, I get it. (laughs) I was, I love that. Yeah. Well, it's, especially if you have more than one child trying to navigate all of those appointments, it's hard enough. If you, if both parents are working, trying to get everybody to a yearly visit, just a well yearly well visit dentist appointments, eye mm-hmm. appointments, um, and then you throw throw in sick yeah. visits like, oh, I've got an earache. I need to go get that checked out. Or that's hard to do. I can't imagine having this as an option to just have that whole element lifted well, off your shoulders. And it's just yeah, and and of. you know, and we have so many of the families that we work with who are doing an awesome job managing just so much, just so much, and um, I. You know, I I don't manage nearly that much, and I I don't do it as well. <laughs> you know, like, and um, you know, these are kids and families who are putting out eight or nine fires just to get to school in the morning. So you know, what can mm-hmm. look often like um, medication noncompliance, or gosh, why won't they pick up their kids' meds, or why won't they take their kid for this follow up visit, or whatever, that can all look like someone mm-hmm. who doesn't want to be engaged. But in reality, what it is is just someone who has so much other stuff going on that they just do not have the bandwidth to deal with something until it's an emergency. 
And we're trying to prevent that. And, you know, if we can give the kid the med in school or have it, you know, utilize one of our relationships with the delivery pharmacies to have a medicine delivered, drop it off at the house or um, grab a kid before some wheezing turns into a full blown status asthmaticus, you know, like that's what we want to do, you know, and. Um, mm-hmm. what's nice is that we've had, we've been here for a couple of years now, so we've developed relationships. So now, you know, families will send in their kids, but then also that kid will bring a sibling or a cousin or a neighbor. So we really are, it's almost like, you know, you're like a, the old, you know, you know kind of like of an era gone by, like the, like family provider mm-hmm. where you see just everyone. Like I'll have, I have families where I see just yeah. the whole, the whole everyone, you know, who's school aged is, is a patient of mine. It's nice. It is really nice. And it's a really, um, it's a great way to be able to serve people in, and to be able to kind of like honor them and listen to what would work for them. Cause you know, my, the majority of my, I, all, I would say probably all of my patients live at or well below the poverty line. And, um, you know, whenever I have, and and they're all exposed to trauma, like we were talking about earlier, like, I mean, the trauma is almost omnipresent, um, you know, be it through um, violence in a neighborhood or violence in a school or something going on with their family, like there's a lot of trauma happening. And we know now in pediatrics, just the so the many, many ways that affects a kid's brain and their ability to respond to things. Um, So it's nice to be able to have an environment where you've been able to build this trust with a family and have them sit and just tell you what going on and have them say, you know, yeah, we both want to get to this outcome, but you know, this is what's preventing it for me. This is what the barrier is. This is why I can't get there. And I always tell my students when I have, you know, nurses or nurse practitioner trainees or someone, I say, if you're not willing to consider, you know, poverty and trauma as part of the chief complaint here, then you really don't want them to get better (laughs) because, you know, that is going to be something that plays into um, how they manage this at home or, you know, how they understand these discharge instructions, all of it, you know, all of it. And, and, you know, if you don't want to get better, that's fine, but probably this isn't the place for you. Yes. Well, I think that's amazing. And it's one of the things that I've personally noticed as a patient, obviously I'm a nurse, so I understand, but even before I became a nurse, I, I went to nursing school a little bit later in life. So one thing that I always noticed about nurse practitioners but they seem to be not to paint a broad stroke and just, you know, generalize an entire group of people. I don't normally do that sort of thing. But I just noticed that nurse practitioners a lot of times would take a little more time to explain things and worry worry more about the education, like really try to explain something. And so I think that that probably goes back to the the nursing theory, you know, of the the whole patient, the whole person and um, making sure that the patient understands and that sort of thing. So, and that's what I think is so special about nurse practitioners. Well, that, I mean, that's very kind. I, 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 when I was picking, you know, kind of what I wanted to do, I knew that I'd interact because I worked in the NICU for a while. Um, and I got to see a lot of nurse practitioners and see what they could do and watch the way they cared for their patients. That was my first, you know, kind of professional exposure to nurse practitioners. And I was like, Oh my gosh, who wouldn't want to do that, you know? Um, and I thought for a while I was like going to be a neonatal nurse practitioner. And then I realized I, I loved babies, but I also loved 18 year olds and I love five year olds. And, you know, like, I just, I really like kind of like the whole, um, the whole age range uh, that you get in pediatrics. But, um, I think it is, it's one of, you know, I always say like, aside from being like a wife and a mom, it is the greatest privilege of my life to, to work with these families and kids 
it, with the shared goal of having everyone feel healthy and safe enough to do well in school. You know, because, you know, I always talk to the kids about, you know, what's your job? Like, tell me your occupation. And they say student, you know, like they're, they're driven. They have goals. They're going to succeed. You know, every single kid who sits in front of me has somewhere they want to go and things they want to achieve. And I say that, yes, that's totally right. Exactly. And I said, my job is to make sure you feel as healthy and safe as possible, you know, so that you are able to work to your fullest potential to achieve your goal. And, you know, because I, you know, when you're doing like adolescent medicine, you're asking some fairly intimate questions of kids. And initially, I think they're kind of like, why is this lady want to know about that? (laughs) Are you going to tell my mom? (laughs) You know, like that kind of stuff. But um, I, you know, the it's, I think, you know, I, I always just try to reassure them that my goal is just to make sure I'm taking care of you in the best way I can. And, you know, it's up to you what you share with me and what you don't. And when they do end up sharing, it ends up being not just about like whether they've experimented with things or not, but about, you know, the fact that they've been sleeping in a car or the fact that, you know, mm. both of their parents are in jail or, you know, just, and then I think, oh my gosh, and you're here, you're still here and you're trying to work and you're doing well in school. And I, you know, I'm just so impressed with you. Whenever you're talking to these patients, it seems like for me, I feel like I would get frustrated sometimes if I see the child in a situation that they don't really have control over. And you know that it would be so much better if they were not in that. So you mentioned like them living in a car or maybe you know, maybe it's a situation where it's a child living with a step parent who's mm-hmm. not necessarily real nice to them, or for whatever reason the parents are just not um, paying close enough attention to the child, or maybe they're maybe they're neglected. Mm-hmm. Or do you ever get frustrated and and feel like you could do so much more if the parents were more involved, or if they had parents? I actually- my experience has not been that in my population the parents are not involved. I have, you know, a lot of, I have parents who certainly have a lot of challenges that people making more money do not have. Um, We certainly do not make it easy to live in poverty in this country. Not one little bit of it is easy, but you know, these parents are really, I mean, they're working really hard. They want great things for their kids. They're, 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 in the same headspace as everyone else, you know, that you would encounter in a pediatric primary care practice. Um, what they, what makes it unique is that, you know, due to circumstances that they're living in or dealing with, um, it manifests, and this kind of, I think goes back to what we, I think we talked about this earlier. It manifests as kind of looking like, um, they're not either wanting to meet their kids needs or whatever. Of course, you're always going to find, you know, kids who are, being uh, cared for in situations that you don't like, but that is not unique to kids in poverty. That is everywhere. And I always say that um, there, I, I work with kids because I, I like kids and I understand them. I don't understand adults. <laughs> I, I'm like completely incapable of really getting what adults are thinking a lot of the time. But um, so I get, I get really mad at, um, at systems and the adults who design our systems and the decisions that are made. Cause I see how those affect our kids and that's where my frustration comes in. You know um, that's where I think, Oh wow. Why is this so hard for this family? You know, but when I have a family that is, is here and they're like the kids at school and she's stressed out cause she's been living in a car. They've been living on the street or they were in a shelter or whatever. Um, I call that parent and I get a hold of that parent and I say that the kid was 
super brave and super insightful. And she shared what was going on with me. Um, and then I say, you know, can I connect you with our social workers to talk about if there are any resources that we could explore together? And then I always think, and I say this usually like there, like with everything that was going on, their kid is still like dressed and functioning and at school. Like they, they, you know, like I, my threshold (laughs) for copping out and giving up is so much lower, you know, like I, (laughs) I will quit way as soon as it gets hard. As soon as I think it's hard, I like roll over and play dead. And the the families that I work with do not, you know, they are, um, they are so resilient and so tough and so driven. And, you know, Mm -hmm. they are, that's why I love that they will share with me, you know, when I have a treatment plan or something that I want to pursue, they'll say, yes, this is realistic or or, no, that's not going to work for us. And then they'll tell me why. And, if, if that can just be solved by a thing, like, you know, if that's a problem that can just be solved by, yeah, we can, can, we have a resource for that, or yes, there's a connection for that, or I can, I can find a different medicine for that. Like, I don't, I almost don't consider that something to, you know, like a, like that's such a small barrier. You know, what I worry more about is when I see these large systems and I think, you know, you, I'm sure you experience this as well as anyone who works in healthcare does these large mm-hmm. systems who, that are almost making it, they're making it difficult for providers to treat kids and and families the way they want. But then also they're making it difficult for, you know, kids and families in poverty to ever break that cycle of poverty, to ever get out of poverty. That's where I get frustrated. I don't, not not usually with the kids and the families, you know, not, they're, they're, yeah, Mm. no, they're great. They've, (laughs) they're they're pretty easy for me to work with. (laughs) That's awesome. One thing that I, when I, I know when I did my clinical at um children's and yeah. I you know for just a few weeks you know you have to go and, and do a clinical and at uh during the OB rotation as well I found it frustrating whenever I was around parents who seemed to be more focused mm. on their own drama mm. than they were on their sick child and I would find that very difficult and, and my, I would find myself getting just just kind of so perplexed by it. And I just I was overwhelmed by it. And I realized it was just not for me because I couldn't mm-hmm. separate myself from it. I, um, whereas in an adult setting with adults, they're doing it to themselves if they are. And and I, I can even take care of somebody like that and even have compassion mm-hmm. for them because I do things mm-hmm. to myself. You know what? We all that we all do that. And that's okay. But to see you know, a child suffering and then see parents standing there arguing right in front of the child and just, just seemingly just not thinking about the child. And I, I saw that quite a bit during clinical. I don't know if it was just a, mm-hmm. a fluke that I happened to see that or if it was just the, the nature of having a sick child that kind of brings all the ugliness out in you because it's a stressor and yeah. it's just what happens. But it just made me think, I don't know that I could handle this. And these young um, girls just graduating from college seem to be like the perfect person for that situation because they don't have children of their own, a lot of them yet. So they're not picturing, like for me, yeah. I think I pictured my own children and it would, I would, I would just get so frustrated and just think, oh, this poor child sitting here. Well, and no, and what that tells me is that you are also, I, I, you know, and I, I know that you're awesome at what you do. I know that, but it also tells me that you were such a good advocate for your patient when you were in your pediatric clinical rotation, because it tells me that your heart and your mind were focused on the kid. And that's great. You know, like not, and not everyone can say that like that. So I, it sounds like you, you know, you chose what you wanted to do, but it, 
I'm hearing that you could have done either one, that you would have been great at either one. What I think of when I when I do encounter families like that, when you're like, well, you know, I'm talking about the kid and they keep bringing up themselves. I think a couple things. Um, I think one, mm-hmm. you know, either you, you, the adult has, you've never had an opportunity to tell this to anyone and you know, you need to be validated, you know, so they, you know, and I try to validate and move mm-hmm. on, which is actually also how I parent. So <laughs> You validate and move on. Um, <laughs> yes, I understand your sad that it's raining. Validate and move on. <laughs> like, but you know, I think you know either they've never had a chance to share this, and they they just need that experience of kind of getting this out and saying this and whatever. Um, or um, I see, I just kind of see that there's a lot of, of hurting happening. You know, they're they're hurt that their kid is hurt, and they you know they need to kind of that's their way of showing that empathy. Or I just hear the frustration that this is, you know, this sick kid, this was nobody's plan A, this was nobody's plan B, nobody saw themselves ending up here, and none of us are kind of operating at our best selves right now, you know? And um, I am frequently not at my best self, um, but, and so I, so I understand that. I understand not being at your best self, um, and I, especially if you're concerned about your kid, but then also you're concerned about, are we going to get evicted? How am I going to feed everyone? Um, you know, is my brother in jail? Is he out? You know, like, there's just, I, that's a lot. That's a lot. And I just feel like generally, and this could be, this could be, you know, me being naive. I assume that most people are doing their best all the time. And, or at least most of the time. And, um, you know, with that, it kind of makes my day a little easier because I just tend to, unless I'm proven like directly in contrast to that, like some, it's like someone's holding up a sign that's like, I am doing my worst, you know, like then I, then I believe them, but (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to check out today. Sorry. (laughs) Signing out. I'm done. Um, but other than that, I just tend to assume that this is, they're doing what they can and, my experience with families who are in crisis almost all the time, which you wouldn't believe is possible, but yeah, it is. And that starts to affect you both mentally and physically is that if you are, mm. you consistently show up for them and yeah. you're there for them and you're, you, you know, you're calm and you're patient and you listen, they chill out, you know, they do chill out and they remember that you're the person who didn't, and I'm using the Royal you here, you know, they remember that you're the person who didn't judge them and didn't freak out and, you know, didn't get excited. You know, they just, they, and they, they calm down. And then, you know, I've, I, I, cause I just can't, I understand that they are going through so many challenges that I would not want to go through. And my goal is to help with, you know, a a small part of it. You know, I, I fix whatever I can that's right in front Mm -hmm. of me or that I can resolve with a phone call and I'll stay on the case, um, as much as I can. But, um, you know, I, I, and then I just kind of hope from there that things get better and better and better. Is that the pizza guy? Is it? Did you order me pizza? Do you know where I live? <laughs> like, I don't know where you live. Or if it was just you. That would be a nice trick, wouldn't it? Would you just freak out though? If you were like, oh my gosh, it is pizza. <laughs> just you standing on my porch. No. Hi, it's me. <laughs> I know I heard, I, th- Sam and I did that our first episode. The, the doorbell rang and we, we didn't even think about the fact that we had ordered pizza and we were both like, oh, that's the pizza guy. And then we just paused it, went and got the pizza, ate it, and then turned it back on. So that's how we roll. I thought it was maybe my husband and my son coming home. I hear noise. Either. No, yeah. But then I heard sometimes if, if my son doesn't have his key and he doesn't want to go through the garage. He'll... It was a doorbell. Either there's a burglar in the house or my family's home. <laughs> yeah. Just to... a really polite burglar who rings the doorbell first. <laughs> Like a, like a kind, yeah. you know, Midwestern <laughs> burglar with manners. Well, is there anything else that we need to talk about? Um, I think, think probably 
just, I, I don't know. I think the only other thing I forgot to mention, and I think this is important to mention is that I, we definitely function as part of a team. You know, I don't want anyone to think I'm like, so how, how large is the team? You know, uh, we have five nurse practitioners and then we, uh, um, we have a medical director. Wow. And so, and do you go director. to different schools or do you, are you just in one school? We no. we, um, so we've built the clinics. So each clinic looks different because it's oh, been okay. built inside the school that it serves. So, um, my clinic at one school will look okay. different to my clinic in another school. Um, and they're all different sizes and shapes. I have one that is just te- like teeny tiny, I mean, you know, maybe mm-hmm. like 10 by 10. It's very small, but it, you know, gets a job done and it's, it's a busy little clinic and I like it very much. Um, but the, you know, we kind of all, um, we stay, we have our own personal schools that we, that we are the primary provider for we and we'll cover for each other every now and again but generally you're at the schools that you okay. serve and that's your that's your station well I love this idea I think it was just a genius idea and it's wonderful and I hope that it the, that the idea spreads and and um, is offered to more people yeah I'm you know and the concept itself is you know school-based health is not new I mean I think it's been around since like the 90s but what you know and and there certainly are many, many other clinics that, you know, function within schools or serve schools. Um, but, you know, I think we just try to be as comprehensive as we can and just really responsive to our population and what they're asking for. Um, I'm sure just like any other mm-hmm. practice, you know? Um, but yeah, I would love it. I would love it if this was something that we had, you know, I would love it if my kid's school had this, you know, um, right now it's like the shoemaker's children who yeah, have no shoes, no shoes because yeah. Cause he's overdue for a well check <laughs> real, bad. <laughs> real bad. Don't tell his pediatrician. That makes me feel so, better. Cause you know, I'm that, always feeling like the horrible, I did a job doing some telehealth for a little bit. Oh yeah. And then, uh, when I was being the the nurse who was like, Hey, I'm the doctor's not going to call in your asthma medicine because you haven't been in for a well visit. You know, I would always be like, Hey, look, I know, I understand. I'm, I'm that parent too. <laughs> I'm not judging you in any way. I promise. But I just have to say this. <laughs> because it's just so a fact. Yeah. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm so sorry. You're going to have to go to the emergency room. If I were you, I'd probably be doing the same thing because if your child hasn't had an asthma attack in over yeah. a year, you probably haven't even thought about it. You know, it's just one of those yeah. things. Well, yeah. And then also there, there's, then it gets into that whole like complication of being like someone in healthcare who also has children. Mm-hmm. And so your children basically have to be on fire before they get any sort of care. <laughs> it's just like, oh, you're fine for crying out loud. Yeah. I'm like, take him, take an Advil. You're going <laughs> to rub some dirt on it. You're like, you're going to be all right. And then, you know, like my son will come home. He'll be like, oh, this my, this hurts or I'm, I got this going. I'm, I'm like, you're all right, man. You're like walk it. You know, well, they fine. tell you things her. constantly. Everything hurts oh, all the time. from the top of their head to the bottom of their feet. There is always something hurting well, or some weird yeah. thing. This is, I feel this weird pain or I, you know, all, all the times. Yeah. I mean, what do you say yeah. every single time? What are you supposed to do? Well, and, and they all, um, and your kids too probably all used like proper terminology for it too. Like I remember one time I was in the grocery store with my son and he, they had like some sort of fun station set up for kids and they had like, like, I don't know, like slime or foam or something. And he like put his hands in it and then like drew him up to create like a big cavern. And he was like, mom, look, it looks like a uterus. <laughs> and I was like, and he, he was like, Neither of my kids has anything resembling a whisper. Like they're both just screamers at baseline. So he screamed, look, I made a uterus across the grocery store. And there's all these other little kids who are making like 
I made a snowman and like, or I'm <laughs> this is a pony. A yeah. Yeah. And I was like, whose kid is that? <laughs> but it, no, I didn't say that. I was like, you did. I'm, I'm really proud of you. That's great. Let's go. Gotta go get bananas. That's beautiful. Well, I guess we wrapped it up now. This is, um, I don't even know what episode number I, I never know. I think it's 15. All right. Yay. It's an accomplishment. Good for you. Yay. I'm proud of you. Thank you, Meg. So it's been really fun doing this. Hopefully, whenever you know we get off this recording, I won't go back and hit play and hear nothing. That's what's always my fear. <laughs> you just never know. <laughs> well, then it'll turn out I've been a ghost the entire time. There was never a Meg. <laughs> no. So, you know, what are you talking about? There's no Meg. You have no Meg in Meg. your friends list. There's nobody on Facebook by that name. Meg died a hundred years ago. <laughs> now there was a Meg who was a pediatrician. Yeah, she was a pediatric nurse practitioner. Yeah, she's been long gone. So, you read that ghost story? So common. Be, so hopefully, though, my uh, horrible mad, bad mojo will not be all over this. And, and I'll, you know, we'll get off this recording and it'll be good. And um, but we'll see. I have faith. <laughs> Well, so at the end of the recording, so first of all, uh, before we uh, kind of close it out, I do want to uh, ask my listeners to go onto iTunes and subscribe. And then if you would rate and review us because it helps us to get our podcast out there and then also go on Facebook. And like I said, just let us know you're listening and let us know where you're from. Some of you people are from. Okay. Number one, why I did not think to say this from the beginning, who in the world is from Guernsey? Uh, and I feel like you're in my brain because I just read the book about the potato pie peeler. Have you heard the, the book, uh, the Guernsey Peel um, no, but I'm Googling it. Society? I can't think of the name of it. My mind is going blank now. Anyway, I watched the movie and then I read the book. And then all of a sudden there's like two or three downloads from this little island in the UK. That's out, you know, out, outside of the UK. It's a British isle. And it was it, the the book is the Guernsey Literary, Literary and Potato yeah. Peel Pie Society. Yes, so that's the book. So I I literally just read that, and all of a sudden, there's like two or three people that are listening to the podcast from Guernsey. Who are you? I need to know who you are because number one, uh, are you in a book club, and can I be in it? But I just thought it was so weird. So um, if you would just find somewhere on social media, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, whatever, and um, let us know where you're from. And I guess that's it. So. Meg, do you know how we close out the episode to be listened to an episode all the way to the very end? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, we'll just like one, two, three, and then we'll say it together. Oh, okay. It's like a, like a chant. Yeah. Okay. I'm ready. You, all right. You ready? Yep. One, two, three. Even if you're a bad girl, be a good nurse.